Welcome to The Gray Zone, where we feature independent investigative journalism, frontline reporting, and uncensored conversations exposing the politics of empire. Together with my colleagues, Aaron Mate and Anya Parampil, I'm your host, Max Blumenthal. In this episode of The Gray Zone, we speak to retired U.S. Colonel and former Pentagon advisor Doug McGregor on the course of the Ukraine proxy war, United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Negative Effects of Unilateral Coercive Measures, Alina Duhan, and Iran-based scholar, Sitara Sadeghi, on the protests still taking place across her country. Joining me is Doug McGregor. He is a retired Army Colonel and a former senior Pentagon advisor. Doug, thanks for joining me once again. Uh, sure, absolutely. Let me ask you your response to the news we got late last week. Uh, out of nowhere, the top military officer in the U.S., General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, comes out in favor of diplomacy with Russia. And this comes just a few weeks after congressional progressives were bullied into retracting their call for the same thing, for talking to Russia to end this war. And now we have the top military officer in the country, General Milley, reportedly clashing with other Biden administration officials uh, and calling for talks with Russia. So uh, what to you is the significance of this? And, and why is Milley, of all people, coming out in favor of talks with Russia? Well, first of all, General Milley has a reputation for not, not doing something unless he's uh, calculated the outcome and thinks it will benefit him. He leaked things uh, from discussions with Trump, which were designed to benefit him. We had no idea whether or not they were true. Uh, he's now done the same thing with the New York Times. He essentially said, uh, I think the Ukrainians have done all they can reasonably do, and it would be a good time to negotiate. Effectively, that's what he said. And supposedly, that's what he told President Biden. Of course, President Biden and uh, Sullivan and Blinken and the rest of them all rejected it out of hand. So there are a couple of things that are very interesting. So the second point is, this is Milley talking out of school. He's the senior military advisor to the president. Frankly speaking, anything he says is confidential and should be kept quiet. He's entitled to think whatever he likes, hold whatever opinion he wants to, but once he expresses that to the president, quite frankly, Aaron, that's where it ends. During World War II, you had Admiral Leahy in the, in the White House, who was the de facto equivalent of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Then you had uh, King in the Naval Forces and Marshall with the Ground and Air Forces. They did not go public and reveal anything that they discussed with the president, ever. Even after the man was dead. <laughs> okay, so uh, we, we have ha pretty much held to that. Uh, you have very few exceptions where anybody has spoken out of school. And usually when a senior general does that, they remove him because that's not his job. He's to advise. He's not an opinion maker. He's not a policy maker. So now the third thing, what it, what's he up to? Well, I can tell you that Millie is afraid and he should be afraid. This is a man who has no personal experience of combat, but he knows the cold, hard facts. The cold, hard facts are that we don't have the ammunition on hand. We don't have the fuel on hand. We don't have the repair parts on hand. We don't have enough soldiers on hand to consider a confrontation with Russia. And he knows that under certain circumstances, 
we could end up in a confrontation with Russia. Now, a few weeks ago, we had General Petraeus, who's very Millie-like, similarly self-focused, but he blurted out this notion of a multinational task force, a quote-unquote coalition of the willing, consisting largely of uh, American forces, Polish forces, and Romanian forces, about 90,000 troops, that somehow or another would stagger into Western Ukraine at some point, and this would uh, result in some sort of peaceful outcome. Well, Millie's not foolish. She knows that you're not going to get a peaceful outcome from that. The Russians have made it very clear. They will treat any interference with their operations as an act of war. And then secondly, he knows the truth. We, we are not in a position to sustain ourselves. The Ukrainians have been firing 7,000 artillery shells a day. The Russians have been firing 20,000. Now, we just arranged with the Koreans <clears throat> to ship 100,000 155 millimeter shells to Ukraine. We bought it literally for the Ukrainians. Well, there's a problem. That, that might, might work for about 14 days of artillery action. With the Russians, that's five days. My point is we're not in a position to confront them because we don't have the depth in the force. And Millie also knows something else. He knows what's coming. He's watched the Russians completely change their approach. They went into Ukraine with one hand tied behind their backs. They never used more than 20% of their ground force, and of that, only 110,000 troops initially in Ukraine. And then they went entirely on the defensive uh, in August. And that's what they've done ever since, consolidated their position, pulled in their horns, because the generals told Putin, the only way we can end this is if we do it militarily. If we're going to end it militarily, that means massive offensives, more troops, more materiel, that's going to take time. And so the Russians have said, fine, we'll trade ground for time. We will consolidate our position, minimize our losses, and let the Ukrainians expend themselves. Millie knows all of these things. And he is concerned because he's talking to people who don't seem to be in touch with reality. That's the danger. And so, he doesn't want to walk to the president and say, Mr. President, our conventional force is in danger of being annihilated because we staggered in there or we're dragged into this somehow. And the only way we can end this is to talk to the Russians and try to get out or opt for a nuclear response. And he doesn't want to go there. Nobody in Washington with a brain wants to go there. That was at the center of the discussions between China and Washington, or between Xi and Biden, made it very clear. No nuclear weapons are going to be used anywhere. Absolutely not. So I think he's worried, very worried, about the people he's dealing with and their lack of understanding of the realities of warfare. So just if I understand you right, Millie is preempting other counterparts in the Biden administration who you think might want to push this into full-scale U.S. military involvement? I think it's possible. Let's put it this way. I think this notion that Petraeus set forth is very attractive to the civilians. Remember, over the last 30 years, what have we had? We've had a series of interventions pushed by secretaries of state, Secretary uh, Albright was in the forefront of this sort of thing. Remember her famous conversation with uh, General Powell? Well, General Powell, you keep talking about this wonderful army. 
why can't we use it? And of course, Powell's argument was, well, you, you don't use military power indiscriminately. You only use it when it's a last resort, when you are compelled to do so. But the lesson from Desert Storm for all of the neocons and globalists is look at this wonderful set of toys. We can take these toys anywhere we want. We can bully everybody into submission. Well, there's a problem. The problem is Russia cannot be bullied into submission. Neither can China. And if we try to do it, we're going to lose in Eastern Europe. And that's something that Milley has figured out. He understands that. And he's afraid that Blinken and Klein and Sullivan and Biden don't understand that because they've drunk the Kool-Aid. Now, what's the Kool-Aid? Ever since 24 February, you and I and everybody else have sat around listening to the Ukrainian victory speech. Ukrainians are winning. The Ukrainians are winning. Just look, they're winning. Uh-huh. Well, look at the map. They're not winning. And they've lost over 100,000 killed and hundreds of thousands of casualties. Huge quantities of equipment have been lost, destroyed, stolen. They are on their last legs right now. They have nothing to offer. They're waiting around for the sledgehammer to show up and crush them. And so Millie says, you know, they've done about all we can expect. I think they should negotiate. And what does he get? Absolutely not. We must crush the Russians. We must defeat them. They need to understand. We have to impart this lesson. It's insane. Well, you know, on that point, this is from CNN uh, to the claim you make about how, you know, people, uh, bureaucrats inside the State Department, civilians are, are more hawkish than the Pentagon. This is what CNN says. Quote, one official explained that the State Department is on the opposite side of the pole from General Milley. That dynamic has led to a unique situation where military brass are far more fervently pushing for diplomacy than U.S. diplomats. Of course. Well, you know, we have been lying to the American people for at least two decades, probably 30 years. Why have we been lying? We've been telling them we're the greatest military in the world. No one can challenge us. Aaron, that was never true. And we dismantled most of our capability after 1991. What we have today is a shadow of what existed 30 years ago. And we no longer have a monopoly on the technologies that delivered so much success for us. Most of that had to do with microcircuitry, which is critical to precision. So the point is, the generals have been standing out there decorating themselves for Christmas every every other week with new medals, telling everyone they're heroes and that we can do everything, and we can't. And they've had their bluff called. And I think Billy went in there to say, look, you know, this is very dangerous stuff. We don't want to do this. We really need to end this before it gets out of control. And by the way, as we discussed shortly before we came on here, we've had a couple of stray missiles that went off course and struck just inside the Polish border, and two Poles were killed. And so now we have the Polish National Defense Council holding a meeting. Now, I don't know what's going to come out of it. I suspect the Russians will say, look, we're very sorry. Went off course. We'll do our best to avoid that in the future. Whether or not the Poles choose to accept it is, is hard to know. But I don't see any appetite in NATO whatsoever to mobilize that alliance to go into Russia and fight. I just don't see it. The Poles may be willing to do that. Some of the Romanians may be, but that's all contingent on us. We're the backbone. We're the center. We have to lead it. 
Let me ask you uh, to speak more about the state of Ukraine's military. As you said earlier, the conventional picture we get is that Ukraine is winning. And uh, to substantiate that, uh, pundits here will point to the Ukrainian victories in Kherson and Kharkiv. But meanwhile, uh, you have admissions like this in the New York Times, uh, quietly reported. Despite Russia's setbacks on the battlefield, the Russian military continues to wage an effective missile and drone campaign against Ukraine's infrastructure, according to U.S. defense officials and military analysts, exposing gaps in a heavily strained Ukrainian air defense network. And perhaps because of that, one U.S. official recently told Politico, quote, why not start talking about peace talks before you throw another 100,000 lives into the abyss? It's striking that we're getting this kind of commentary from U.S. officials now that we were not getting, at least as far as I could tell, early on in the war. Well, the decision in Moscow to go on the strategic defense once they had seized the territory where most of the Russian-speaking citizens live has actually worked very well for Russia. And the Ukrainians have lost tens of thousands of soldiers in this unending series of attacks. Now, people point to Kharkov and say, well, look, they had success up there. Well, there were only 2,000 Russians. It's flat. There's nothing to stop the Russians until they reach the river, which is just short of the Russian border. So the Russians said, look, well, we need the 2,000 men. We're not going to sacrifice them. Pull them out. Let the Ukrainians move in there. And oh, by the way, while they're in there, we're going to kill as many of them as we can with the standoff attack. And that's what they did. Uh, they lost, the Ukrainians lost 30 to 40% of that force. And out of 30,000 men, that's, that's a substantial loss. You had a similar situation up and down that front. And in Kherson, it was different. In Kherson, you, have 30, you had 30,000 Russian soldiers sitting in a town with a dam further up to the Dnipro River that if the dam broke, they would then be flooded, literally, in this city. They decided they didn't want the dam broken, and they didn't want to risk those soldiers being flooded. And they knew they could hold it. That wasn't the question. They could easily hold the place. They had built enormous defenses. But the Supreme Commander said, Mr. President, I want to get them out. We don't need this right now. We can always go back and get it. Let's pull them out, rest them, refit them, and repurpose them for the major offensives that are coming later this year. The Russians have always regarded ground as something that is only useful if it confers an advantage on you. They have a long history of giving up ground left and right when it made strategic sense to do so. They fought the Mongols that way. They fought the Huns that way. They fought the Turks that way, the Tartars, everyone. And frankly, they fought Napoleon and the French and, and later on the Germans that way in World War II. Ground in and of itself doesn't have much value unless it gives you an advantage. If you have an advantage, stay with it. And that's what they've done up and down that line. They've adjusted the line so that they're holding terrain that they can easily defend. Because you want to defend with the least effort possible while killing as many of the people attacking you as you can. The Russians know how to do that. They've done that very well. This is not going to last because the Ukrainians have run out of manpower. They can't even fuel armored forces anymore. They've had to pull most of the armor back because they don't have fuel for it. They can't go on like this. They can't evacuate people from the battlefield who are wounded. They've had too many people die of wounds. We're sending them 100 M113s in various conditions. Most of those will be used as ambulances to evacu evacuate the wounded. 
because in a high intensity battlefield, you can't fly helicopters in and fly people out. This is the sort of uh, story that you had in Vietnam and Korea, you know, MASH helicopter shows up, picks up the wounded, flies them out and their lives are saved. That doesn't work. You have integrated air defenses on the Russian side. That's why the Air Force is ineffective on the Ukrainian side. If we went in there with our Air Force, we would lose large numbers of planes very quickly. Again, our readiness rates in the Air Force aren't very good either, as has been recently announced. So I think I think our generals have finally come clean and said, don't do this. Now, how far did they go in private? I don't know. But I think Milley is afraid that they'll be pushed into doing something. And so he's given it his shot, and he wasn't happy with the response he got, so he thought he'd leak it. Perhaps now, in the days ahead, we'll get a, a clearer picture of just how bad it is on our side. That would be helpful. The American people need to know that while we don't have very large forces and our forces are not in the best shape, as a proportion of the force, we have more generals and admirals than we have had in our entire history. We have them falling out of the trees. We have so many headquarters with so many admirals and generals. It's not even funny. It's a disgrace. It's a joke. Uh, as we're speaking, the fate of the House is still uh, unclear, but it looks like Republicans will take control of the House. Uh, if that happens, do you expect to see any change of policy when it comes to funding for the proxy war in Ukraine? In the short term, no. Once again, too many people are invested in the dumb idea now. And they've been back and told Americans this is a great idea when it's a very bad one. And remember, Americans are treated largely to the diet of misinformation and nonsense through the mainstream media. I don't know if you ever saw it, but I was on with uh, Stu Varney one morning. It must have been an accident. Somebody must have said, bring McGregor on. He's a military guy. And I guess he assumed that I would say, yeah, let's go get those Ruskies. We have to help these Ukrainians and win this war. I got on there and I said, no. But I, I said, Zelensky's not a hero. And I tried to talk about the man's true origins and nature. It picked up from nowhere. Couldn't even speak a word of Ukrainian when he became president. His only language was Russian. And he was picked up by an oligarch, put into the job. So, and Stu Varney said, well, uh, I, I, well, uh, thank you. I guess it's one way to look at it. And I've never been invited back. <laughs> you know, come on, let's be frank. The Americans aren't hearing the truth. They're hearing what a select group of people who are extremely well-financed on Wall Street, in the media, I would add Hollywood to it. You just, just go down the list of, of wealthy people. We mentioned Bill Gates and others. They've all signed on for this. It's part of a, an agenda that they have, but it's not in the interest of the American people. And I don't know if you stood on the sidewalk in Seattle or, or uh, Kansas City and said, come here, come here. How many of you want to go to fight Russia for NATO and America? I don't think you'd get very many. And I think a lot of people would say, what is NATO? And another group of people would say, where is Ukraine? And we go down, oh, come on, Aaron. And I don't fault people for that. We're Americans. We have a wonderful country. We live between two giant oceans. We are, we are an island unto ourselves, and that has worked brilliantly for us. If we could give up the war making all the time, we could make a lot of money by doing business with everybody instead of selectively targeting people and punishing them. So to answer your question, no, I don't think you're going to see much change in the short run. Now, over time, as our own economic system worsens and it becomes evident that we're careening into another 
uh, financial crisis as large or worse than 2008, yeah, then I think they would have said, no, wait a minute. Before you push that button and create another trillion dollars of money, where's all this going and why are we supporting this? That's when you may hear it. But it's because people here are hurting. They, they are hurting, but the hurt has to get worse. The worse it gets, the more they're going to complain and the more people are likely to listen. Doug, as we wrap, any final words for us? And, and are you concerned still about the threat of nuclear war breaking out as a result of this conflict in Ukraine? I don't think so at the moment. Uh, someone who is part of these uh, scientists for uh, nuclear sanity or something say that we're at the 20% mark, 20% potential for uh, nuclear conflict. You can never rule it out completely. Welcome to The Gray Zone, where we feature independent investigative journalism, frontline reporting, and uncensored conversations exposing the politics of empire. Together with my colleagues, Aaron Mate and Anya Parampil, I'm your host, Max Blumenthal. In this episode of The Gray Zone, we speak to retired U.S. Colonel and former Pentagon advisor Doug McGregor on the course of the Ukraine proxy war, United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Negative Effects of Unilateral Coercive Measures, Alina Duhan, and Iran-based scholar, Sitara Sadeghi, on the protests still taking place across our country. Joining me is Elena Dohan. She is the UN Special Rapporteur on unilateral coercive measures and human rights, unilateral coercive measures, also known as sanctions. Elena Delhan, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure for me. You have just returned from a trip to Syria, and uh, upon your return, you issued a call for an end to sanctions that have been imposed on Syria, which you say have been suffocating the Syrian people. Talk to us about what you saw on your visit and what the scope of these U.S.-led sanctions on Syria are and how they uh, impact people's lives inside Syria. Indeed, that's a very broad question. So first of all, it's necessary to mention that that's not only the U.S., but a number of other actors which are imposing sanctions on Syria. We are speaking about sanctions of the European Union. We are speaking about sanctions of Canada, as well as of other countries. So at the very end, uh, Syria faces an extremely broad scope of sanctions imposed by a multiple actors, which quite often are overlapping with each other, but sometimes they are imposed by a single country only. And at the very end, we're speaking about individual sanctions, so targeted sanctions, but which are imposed ex officio over every highest state official. So every minister becomes designated as soon as he or she is appointed as a minister. That basically means that any third actor is scared to deal with anything having to do with the public sector of Syria, even if we speak about the cultural field. There are sanctions which are imposed uh, on the trade of oil, uh, as well as many other areas, including, for example, the aircraft and so forth. 
and uh, there is a prohibition to do any financial transactions with Syria or Syrians. So one of the more main challenges which I have heard about that not a single individual, um, as well as no one from the private sphere is able to transfer money to Syria or from Syria because of these financial impediments, take into account that all public banks as well as two of private banks which used to deal with international trades are designated by sanctions. And uh, naturally, I have been reported that starting from the moment when Caesar Act sanctions have been imposed, which uh, uh, basically provide for the possibility to designate anyone who participates in reconstruction of Syria, terms reconstruction and rebuilding, became the most scary for anyone dealing with Syria. That's why any humanitarian work is uh, currently going on about the emergency humanitarian response rather than recovery or reconstruction of the infrastructure as well as any other critical area. Uh, as concerned the general situation in Syria, it's necessary to take into account that we are not speaking about the impact of unilateral sanctions only. We are speaking about a country which has been enormously affected by 12 years of hostilities, military hostilities on its territory. The report reflects the level of destruction uh, of uh, critical infrastructure on the territory of Syria, primarily due to the hostilities. There are reports, for example, that these hostilities destroyed around 80 to 90% of uh, um, railway infrastructure, around 90% of irrigation infrastructure. Similar situation is happening to other critical spheres of infrastructure, like, for example, water supply or electricity supply. But besides all that, uh, sanctions, broad sanctions, started to be imposed on Syria in 2011 already. That basically means that from 2011, besides of affecting infrastructure as well as various spheres of economy of Syria due to military hostilities, economy as well as infrastructure is also affected by unilateral sanctions. That means that for 12 years, Syria is left on its own as concerned the maintenance of the infrastructure which has not been affected by hostilities, trying to repair with no spare parts available, no equipment available, and very little of reagents available. So what does this mean in practice? Today, electricity is very, access to electricity is very limited in Syria. In majority of cities, uh, people have access to electricity either two or four hours per day only, regardless day, night or night, uh, daytime or nighttime. Uh, hospitals are prioritized and hospitals have access to electricity 10 to 11 hours per day. That's definitely not sufficient, especially when we speak about the urgent surgeries or storage of the med uh, vaccines as well as uh, medicines, which need to be stored cold. So uh, even some hospitals don't have 24-hour electricity? Do they use a generator when the electricity some is- Some of them do. Uh, some of them do, but there are a few problems. So first of all, generators are also not freely available because no one wants to procure anything to Syria. 
Some generators are brought to Syria via humanitarian aid, naturally with hospitals prioritized, but not all hospitals have generator. Point number two, to be able to keep generators, you need to have fuel. And fuel is another huge disaster in Syria currently. Um, the shortage of fuel is so enormous that uh, the Syria is currently able to produce less than one-tenth of what it really needs. It imports certain amount from Iran, although tanker, Iranian tankers are repeatedly seizured and stopped, preventing delivery of this uh, fuel to Syria. Also but bombed. This... Uh, I'm sorry to correct you, but some of these tankers coming from Iran are also bombed by Israel. That's been happening on top of being stopped. That's also the case, uh, but we can speak about other cases of disruption when they are just arrested or the captains of these tankers are designated as terrorists as right. well. So at the very end, the shortage of fuel is terrible right now. I have been reported about enormous problems, not with electricity only, but with heating as well. And... Uh, uh, for example, every family is entitled to get uh, around 50 liters of subsidized fuel that only suffice to keep the family warm for two weeks. But they are entitled to get these 50 liters for the whole year. And all the rest can only be bought at the black market at much higher price and the majority of people can't afford that because more than 90% of population are considered below to be below poverty line. So as for hospitals, even if a hospital has a generator and even if it managed to buy fuel, although, for example, as for fuel, a number of NGOs reported that they buy fuel at the black market and provide it to the hospitals to keep generators functioning. Hospitals can't ever doing it on the, its own. So even in the hospitals, when the electricity switches off, transfer from the regular electricity to a generator uh, causes the jump in the electricity. And that means that the equipment has at least a second shutdown. And due to these shutdowns, lots of equipment uh, disrupts its functioning and uh, it's affected enormously as well. So hospitals are reporting having terrible problems about buying equipment, maintaining equipment, buying spare parts, paying for the simplest medicine, like, for example, uh, catheters, uh, and uh, keeping the equipment functioning. I know this might not be in your uh, purview, given your focus is on the impact of uh, sanctions, but did you get a sense of what the impact is of the U.S. military occupying one-third of Syria, where uh, the bulk of Syria's oil is, and how that is impacted? Uh, the fuel crisis inside of Syria? Well, this issue goes beyond the mandate. But what I reflected in my report, that one of the reasons why Syria is short of fuel is that the fact that it doesn't control the sphere where the, um, it used to use to get oil. And uh, unfortunately, the same situation happens in the sphere of food provision because the same sphere was used, the same territory was used for agriculture mo mostly. So northeast and northwest are the most uh, useful agricultural lands. 
And unfortunately now, especially when we, we speak about the problems with water supply, so it's also very important. 51% of Syrian people are considered to be food insecure. Food insecure means that they, means, they, they miss meals. So they skip meals, that the food basket is very poor, that they do not use protein at all or nearly do not use protein. And more than 2.5 million people are considered to be severe food insecure. That means that they skip days of meal, not meals, just days of meal as such. And uh, agriculture is another problem due to the fact that a part of territory which used to be used for agricultural purposes is not controlled by the government right now. It's under control of other forces, so they can't use it. And secondly, that the possibility of irrigation of the territory controlled by the government is also enormously affected because irrigation system has been affected enormously. And in order to restore the irrigation system, it's necessary, first of all, to have a stable electricity supply to enable water pumps to function. Secondly, it's necessary to restore the in physical infrastructure as such. What is very complicated in the face of inavailability of spare parts and availability of equipment. And thirdly, it's necessary to restore the system of control over water quality. Because unfortunately, due to the destruction, sewage and uh, irrigation system and due to the shortage of water are sometimes mixed. That basically ended up in a cholera outbreak, which is currently observed in Syria. And maybe if I could ask you to speak briefly about what the state of Syria's healthcare system was uh, before the uh, war began in uh, 2011. The, uh, the World Health Organization in 2015 said that before the war, Syria had one of the best developed healthcare systems in the Arab world. I received the same information and naturally I try to collect information from all the sources and uh, I also talk to people. I talk to doctors, I talk to patients. So the all the reports are absolutely the same that uh, healthcare system was very much developed. It included not only hospitals, it also included lots of smaller clinics where you can uh, get basic treatments. So the uh, clinics were in the reasonable distance and moreover there was a public sector medicine, medical care system and the private sector medical care system. What we are currently observing is the situation that medical system is very much affected. Um, first of all it's affected by hostilities, military hostilities, so lots of clinics are physically destroyed together with its equipment. So several hospitals had to move to the buildings of regular clinics, which are not uh, formed. So they are not structured to have a real hospital there. So they are not structured to have surgery there, to have uh, intensive therapy there. That's why it's necessary to have a lot of financing for reconstruction and uh, rearrangement of this regular clinic to the real hospitals. Problem number two, what is currently observed that there was no possibility to buy new medical equipment. Any new medical equipment which currently comes to Syria 
is mostly coming via deliveries of humanitarian aid. Some of them are coming via INGOs and via the UN agencies activities. But unfortunately, the number of the equipment uh, which has been delivered via humanitarian aid uh, is very low in comparison with the needs of Syrian people. Problem number three, it's not possible to repair the existing equipment because the majority of equipment has been produced in Europe. So European uh, producers reject to sell spare parts or pro to provide post-service um, post sales service for this equipment, it's another challenge. Uh, problem number four, Syria used to be one of the hugest producers of pharmaceuticals. So basically Syria used to be pretty self-sufficient in the sphere of production of pharmaceuticals. What's happening yeah. today is first of all, that equipment is old. So production lines are old now and uh, they are not, it's not possible to buy spear parts. And problem number two, lots of raw materials for production of pharmaceuticals used to be bought from Europe. And it's not possible to do it any longer. That's why currently- Because of the sanctions. Yes. Yeah. Uh, producers say, no, we do not want to sell anything to Syria, both to public and even to private sector. I received reports from INGOs that they face enormous problems trying to get exception licenses to deliver medicine and to deliver humanitarian aid to Syria. Something is coming, but it's much lower than it's necessary. And uh, there is another problem due to the terrible economic situation. So 90% of people are below poverty line. People who used to get services in the private sector of healthcare move to public sector because they can't pay any longer. And that means that the burden of a public sector is much higher than it used to be before. And the, another problem is that due to the same economic situation, um, salary of doctors appeared to be enormously low. So I asked in several hospitals and I have been reported that, for example, the salary of the head of the hospital is $40 per month. Per month. Uh, and uh, it's not sufficient to cover anything. The basic minimal food basket uh, for the family of four is 90, around $90 today. So basically the head of the hospital can't buy even food for its family for the full-time jobs. The salary of uh, doctors is naturally lower. In such situation, there is an enormous brain drain of doctors. I was visiting hospitals and I could see that the majority of doctors are either of retiring age or extremely young. So the most pro highly professional staff has left the country or moved to private sector or moved to any other sort of, of activities. And I have been reported, for example, that for the severe surgeries, so for complicated surgeries, there are only two anesthesiologists around the whole country. Welcome to The Gray Zone, where we feature independent investigative journalism, frontline reporting, and uncensored conversations exposing the politics of empire. Together with my colleagues, 
Aaron Mate, and Anya Parampil. I'm your host, Max Blumenthal. In this episode of The Gray Zone, we speak to retired U.S. Colonel and former Pentagon advisor Doug McGregor on the course of the Ukraine proxy war, United Nations Special Rapporteur on the negative effects of unilateral coercive measures Alina Duhan, and Iran-based scholar Sitara Sadeghi on the protests still taking place across her country. Sitara Sadeghi, let's talk about you and your own political views before we get into some of the details of these protests and the campaign behind them. Um, you studied the U.S. civil rights movement as part of your PhD, and you are also a student of propaganda. Um, but where do you situate yourself within the Iranian political spectrum? And specifically, do you support women protesting the morality police um, and issues like the hijab? Well, yes, as you mentioned, I uh, finished my PhD in American studies and I studied propaganda analysis as part of my PhD dissertation and the rhetoric of social uh, movements as well. Uh, so I have always been supportive of uh, the Iranian uh, government as the whole, like the notion of an Islamic Republic, but I have also been uh, critical towards a lot of the things that happen in my country, like uh, many of the other people who live here. So, um, and for the issue of hijab, as someone who believes in hijab and has always practiced it, uh, I am totally against the morality police. Uh, it's, by the way, in Farsi, the word that we use for it is uh, the guidance patrol. And, uh, but in English, it's usually referred to as the morality please and I'm totally against it and um, I have been a part of uh, the people who especially women who un, uh, took it uh, online and used hashtags to talk about uh, how they do not believe in the morality please even though they believe in hijab uh, and this is not something new it has been put in place uh, from many years ago uh, but it become more significant uh, this year uh, so even before the, these protests uh, and before uh, the th tragic death of Masa Amini, people were talking about it online, and I was also one of them uh, because I thought this was uh, totally unacceptable. And even in in my personal life, because I have people, I have friends who do not believe uh, uh, in the hijab and they don't want to practice it, or they practice it in a way that did not fit the standards of the Islamic Republic's law. Uh, of the dress code and they were stopped by the morality police and in at least uh, three cases that I remember I would uh, just go and talk to the morality police and tell them as someone who believes in hijab I am totally against what they're doing and this is not the way they should have, uh, enforce the law um, because you know it's not always that they, the morality police doesn't always arrest people their main job was to go and tell people but even that, uh, I don't, I, I'm totally against it. And I don't think that's something that works, um, mainly because a lot of people who live here uh, and believe in some sort of dress code. Uh, and, I'm, and I think as a woman, I think uh, that's something that people should tell us. Uh, like, I mean, I believe in law and order, but also, uh, I, don't, I, I don't like uh, being told 
with like uh, those details, like how to dress and how to appear in public. What is the the role of the morality police and how much public opposition is there uh, to this unit of the security services? And are they known for being as brutal as they're currently being portrayed as? Uh, well, yes, they are known as being um, brutal because uh, Iranian women don't find it acceptable, not necessarily because uh, like everything that they do is brutal, but but some uh, harsh treatments are uh, an integral part of the way they enforce the hijab law. Um, but it's also that, um, I mean, while I, I think a lot of people uh, are against the morality police, it's not that everyone is against the mandatory hijab law. So these are two things that should be studied differently. Uh, like a lot of people, um, um, I mean, it's uh, uh, there, there are different surveys and uh, different surveys in different provinces show uh, a different percentage of people um, believing in uh, obligatory or mandatory hijab. Uh, and I think that's something that has to be dealt with uh, based on the local culture of each province. And that is also reflective of how the protests are going on. For example, in my hometown, because it's considered more conservative and more traditional, the protests are very um, much smaller than what, what you could see in other cities, uh, for example, in Tehran or Rasht or um, other cities where the protests were uh, like significant compared to what is going on in my town. Um, so, yeah, and and there are also people who believe that the morality police should be in place, but the the methods that are they're using should be different. So if you, if you want to categorize uh, women and people who live in Iran inside Iran, uh, we have people who are totally against the mandatory hijab. They don't believe in hijab at all, and obviously they don't believe in morality police. We have people who believe in hijab, uh, but they don't believe in the morality police or the mandatory hijab. We have people who believe in hijab and they believe in the morality police, but they don't believe in the methods that they are using. Uh, and that uh, also creates a collective of people who are against the morality police. But uh, again, based on um, how they feel towards it, um, their participation in these protests are different. So let's talk about the issue of Masa Amini. What, what do we know about her death, um, most people in the West who are following this believe she was beaten to death by the morality police in police custody. Has that been established as the case? And is that the understanding even of the protesters in Iran? Uh, not really. I mean, uh, even the a lot of those Western media outlets uh, corrected their like headlines or started using different terms. Um, referring to the case when the CCTV uh, footage of uh, the moment when Masa Amini fell and went into a coma. Uh, but the footage, uh, I mean, clearly shows that she was in good health conditions when she was there, I mean, based on what we see. While there are protesters who believe that the beating happened, there are also a lot of protesters who think that it did not happen. But the fact that a young girl died in police custody only because of violating the dress code is something unacceptable, no matter what exactly happened in police custody. Um, you're, you're in Isfahan, which is a large city in Iran. 
outside of Tehran. Most of the protests, as far as we know, have been centered in the capital of Tehran. And you have been receiving a wave of death threats for reporting that the protests in your city were very small and that the protests have not spread to key Iranian cities. Is that still the case? Well, um, I mean, because I have already uh, blocked a lot of people and uh, because the people, the person who started those threats uh, is someone uh, who knew me in person. Uh, at this point, I can say that I haven't received any new threats, but it was because I appear on different media and I have talked about Iran as a political an analyst. And I have always received insulting or sometimes death threat, but this time it was really unprecedented as it was started by someone who knew me in person and had uh, my personal information. And even the number of the people who attacked me was like really huge. And it started with the uh, independence uh, Farsi account on Instagram, um, publishing a snippet of my interview and disregarding all the criticism that I had uh, against the morality police, the crackdown on everything, and just uh, sh uh, saying that I lied about the number of the people uh, participating in the protests or the fact that uh, uh, that these protests are much smaller than the ones that we witnessed, for example, in Esfahan in 2019. Uh, but um, at the same time, there were a lot of people who were totally against even the Islamic Republic, but uh, mentioned that and said, I mean, they verified it and they said that they were part of uh, the protests. And that's true. It was not um, significant because as I said, Isfahan is a conservative and more traditional city, and um, they people take to the streets on different uh, issues. Like um, the morality police is, I guess, not number one issue for people who live here. And I talk to my friends who don't uh, observe uh, the hijab like completely or according to the law, and they said that this is really not uh, their number one uh, issue and. So they don't want to be the part of the protests. The New York Times is also reporting that the U.S. State Department and its allies are trying to get communication gear into Iran. However, much of the noise about these protests appears to be coming from the outside. And it's because of an issue that Westerners can relate to, we are deluged with identity politics here and we don't have large economic protests here in the United States. Uh, any more outside of maybe some union activity, some strikes. Um, this is uh, a case of the weaponization of identity and obviously a real issue, as you point out, a real issue with the morality police. Maybe not at the top of the agenda, but something that upsets a section of the population in Iran. But outside, much of the noise is being made by Iranian exiles or, or, or expats. And one of the key voices who's emerged in U.S. media, cable news media, is a figure named Masih Ali, Alinejad, who I'm sure you know. She's been backed by the U.S. Yeah. government, paid hundreds of thousands of dollars in contracts with the Voice of America, which is the U.S. government's global broadcasting system. She's met with former CIA director and secretary of state Mike Pompeo. Uh, recently, she cooked up a phony plot in coordination with the U.S. government and the FBI claiming that the Venezuelan security services were going to kidnap her and take her on speedboats to Iran. It was one of the most ridiculous plots I've ever heard, and it was widely reported in U.S. media. Now she's back. 
So what do you make of Iranian expats kind of taking the mic and becoming the voice of the Iranian public? Well, I wouldn't mind. I mean, I uh, obviously Iranian women would be very happy if uh, those in exile really wanted to be a voice uh, for women inside. But uh, the thing is, uh, they are just echoing the voice of, uh, um, like I would say, a minority and uh, just a section of the population in Iran that they agree with. Uh, I mean, they. I think they. They also. Um, believe in the uh, Western liberal notion of uh, Iran, like freedom for women, and not the notion they they don't really care. I'm not talking about everyone, obviously, but some of these people who are who are given a voice and whose voices are amplified over the voices of women inside Iran, they're just repeating um, the Western notion of freedom for women, and they do not understand that if women in women in Iran can have a different notion of freedom and they have uh, like uh, other priorities when it comes to women's rights and women uh, activism and a lot of women here are working uh, towards uh, that they are organizing they are uh, using uh, online campaigns to pursue um, Iranian women's rights but these voices from outside really make our struggle more difficult. Uh, and instead of, for example, calling for the US government or EU to lift the sanctions on Iran that are hurting ordinary Iranian people and making it more difficult for women to find, for example, job opportunities or uh, to just uh, be active, uh, an active part of the society, uh, they are calling for their own notion, like uh, they're calling for something that they believe would be liberating for Iranian women. But that's not the case. That's, that's not necessarily the case for the majority of Iranian women. And, you know, um, I personally find it um, like kind of insulting because it, it is like you are you are disregarding and discrediting Iranian women. We have we are like Iranian women inside Iran are very powerful. Uh, a large proportion of Iranian women, uh, or the majority of Iranian women, actually, it's a high percentage, go to colleges and they're they're highly educated. Uh, they We have women in business, we have women in medicine and uh, universities, and women are a very active part of the society. So they know how to pursue reforms. For example, uh, there is this case, and uh, you can see online, that uh, there is um, like civil disobedience happening uh, inside Iran without any hashtags or calls from outside. And it is helping women here, for example, in my town, uh, riding a bicycle for women was not like by law, it was not forbidden. But culturally, there were a group of uh, like extra conservative religious people in Esfahan who were against riding bicycles and the, for women. And they were calling for that to happen. Like they were saying that we're not going to allow that. Women did not take to the to Twitter to talk about it. They did not, uh, you know, make a fuss about it and start uh, like um, running protests. What they did instead was that a lot of women, um, many of them in like full hijab and full covering, uh, started riding their bicycles through the city. And now it has become an absolute normal scene in my city. And they can't, I mean, those conservative 
groups cannot oppose it anymore. This is how civil disobedience and uh, like pursuing reform works, because a lot of the things that we see, for example, the government is uh, um, is actually imposing or uh, implementing comes from the fact that there is a large proportion of the population that believes in those things. So we need education and we need uh, uh, it's a progress. It's a uh, it's a process of reforming and educating women and educating men uh, about women's rights. It doesn't happen by uh, like a hashtag revolution and just taking to the streets. And then, you know, it's very easy for these protests to uh, get violent. And there are people who abuse it. It starts with uh, uh, slogans uh, for women's rights, but it ends up with the slogans against establishment and uh, like uh, calling for the overthrowing of the establishment. So a lot of women don't want to be a part of that simply because they see how this is hijacked, how this is uh, exaggerated by Western media and the social media as well. And, it, and so they see the realities and they see those reflection and they don't want to be a part of it. Uh, but they do their job for um, seeking reform and educating uh, their family members and being an active part of uh, you know, this process of bringing change to their society. This was another episode of The Gray Zone. I'm your host, Max Blumenthal, along with my colleagues, Aaron Mate and Anya Parampil, inviting you to join us again next week on Pacifica Radio for more independent investigative journalism and uncensored conversations exposing the politics of empire. Visit us online and learn how you can support our work at thegrayzone.com. This show was produced by Chris Weaver. 